John chapter 7, verse 37 to 39. And you may recall, this is the same passage we looked at last week, but I didn't finish it for you. So I'm hoping to finish it for you today. Welcome again, uh, welcome again to all of our uh, visitors who are attending faith for the first time. John chapter 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer and commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we thank you once again with humble hearts but full of joy because of what you have done for us. We just thank you so much that you are a God who is ever faithful and ever true, that you have given us your word and you have preserved it for us, and we can trust every syllable in it. Father, we pray that your spirit, who is the author of this word, would be our teacher today. That you would use me only as a mouthpiece. And Father, that you would hide me behind your cross as your word is delivered. We thank you once again for the precious uh, times like these that we can spend together. And we pray that these times indeed would be a time of refreshing and a time where we would learn more of you. And come to know you in a deeper way. That we might glorify you in our lives and we might lift up the name of Jesus every day of our lives. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. When I was first saved, and I didn't know a Baptist from a barnacle, I attended a number of different churches. I'm not sure if you if the same thing happened to you, but when I got saved, I got saved in, in a, it wasn't a church. It was essentially just a fellowship that was meeting in someone's home. So it was all it was like an open market out there. Uh, I didn't know anything about denominations, what the differences in, in, in teachings were and doctrines were. And I found myself, uh, uh, and Miria came along to a number of these where we visited uh, different churches, many of them charismatic, Pentecostal. Um, I don't think I attended any Baptist churches originally, to be honest with you. Baptist, the Baptist came later. Um, but I remember when I first got saved, how I would attend certain churches and we'd see people praying in tongues and speaking in tongues in the middle of a service. That was pretty scary, to be honest with you, first up, when I first started seeing those things. And we, um, and we, we, we saw these things happening and, and we went to a few, um, a few uh, what would you call them, like uh, rallies um, uh, by fantastic and famous Pentecostal and evangelical speakers and they were calling people to front and, and doing all types of, uh, of healings and stuff like that as well. So for me, it was all like, wow, there's a whole new world out there, never seen this sort of stuff before. And uh, we even, because we, were, we came out of the Catholic Church, we were still involved with the Catholic Church. So we were sort of attending a Catholic church, attending a home fellowship and visiting Pentecostal churches and doing all this stuff all over the place. So... We were getting mixed messages from everywhere, to be honest with you. I mean, I remember one experience we had um, where we attended a, um, a Catholic charismatic service and um, they walked in with this massive 
host with a uh, with a sun rays coming out of it, and we walked in there and we saw um, things that we probably don't want to repeat. Um, and the, the type of tongues that they were they were doing were a bit different to the ones of the charismatic church that we visited. I think it was in Richmond, and then it was they were different to someone else and what they were doing. And everyone had a bit different sort of twist on this whole thing. And and in the middle of all this sort of stuff and miracles apparently happening and all this sort of stuff, we 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 came to a knowledge of of what we would call the Holy Spirit and what his function is in the church. And we didn't quite understand what was going on, to be honest with you. And it wasn't until a lot later when we studied the Word of God in earnest, when we studied the Word of God and we, and we pulled it apart and we understood what it was teaching, that some of these things weren't necessarily correct and some of these things were a little bit off kilter. Because I had... I'm not sure if most of you know my testimony, but um, the first person that got saved in our family was my uncle. It was my mother's brother. And he became a pastor of a charismatic church in Morwell. And I loved him to death. He was one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. Very intelligent fellow. And he, he was instrumental in our family uh, coming to the Lord. He was a very faithful man. Um, until later when he started to struggle with his own walk. And the experiences that he was experiencing first, he wasn't getting anymore. And I think the, the lack of emotion that was coming, or the lack of experience um, that, he, that he wasn't feeling after a while, played on him too much. And he ended up actually falling, I won't say fully away, but half away, at least. So I found out that emotion, although it's something that we have in us, can be something that's manipulated within us and is not necessarily a good barometer of our standing with the Lord. Now, I've spoken to a number of you about this particular topic, that our emotions can play havoc with us. Now, when you put that together with doctrine that's a little bit off with respect to the Holy Spirit, you can begin to actually do a whole lot of other things that actually aren't correct. So I'd like to share with you today a sermon which finishes up this particular passage, and I hope you enjoyed last week's sermon on the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, this is the conclusion of this, that particular sermon, and, it, and it's the actual answer that Jesus gives as to who he is offering or what he is offering as this living water that brings life to dead people. What we, what we need to understand, though, is that the Charismatics, the Pentecostals, and people who claim those sorts of uh, things that he works that that he works through them in, in particular ways don't have a um, uh, they don't have a, a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. So they just because they speak about the Holy Spirit a lot doesn't necessarily mean that they own him completely. In fact, in a lot of ways, they're they're well off the mark with him and what he's meant to do. So today's sermon is about that. And it's important for us as Baptists to understand that there are two equal and opposite errors. You can go one direction, which makes you emotionally and, and, uh, and, and doctrinally wrong, or you can go the other way and you can, be, you can totally ignore the Holy Spirit for fear of going that way. Do you understand what I'm saying? There needs to be a biblical position that we hold. And it's not the emotional way. It's not the, the, all these uh, things that, uh, that we don't find in the Word of God. 
And by the same token, it's not that we ignore it either. The Holy Spirit is critical to who we are as Christians. And if we don't understand what he does, we miss a, a significant part of the relationship we now have with the Lord. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said, Without the Spirit of God, we can do nothing. We are as ships without the wind, branches without sap, and like coals without fire. We are useless. So, let's have a look at this passage again. And it tells us, as a, a bit of a recap, John chapter 7, verse 37 says, In the last day... That great day of the feast. Now remember that is the eighth day of a seven day feast, which was the second Sabbath as it was. Jesus stood and cried saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Now we mentioned most of the, uh, the, the details about the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the time that Jesus was present in Jerusalem celebrating this. And it says that he stood and cried, which is interesting because... It gives the indication that most of them were sitting down. But he stood and cried in the midst of this feast, which was memorialising or remembering the salvation that God gave the Israelites from Egypt and sustained them for 40 years in a desert, providing them water miraculously. And as they're meditating on these things and celebrating these things, Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me. I'm the one who will give you drink. I'm the one who will give you that water that you need. So Jesus has the ability, the power and the desire to provide this water, to provide salvation to a spiritually dead person. He's the one who not only can raise up the dead physically, but he raises up people spiritually who are spiritually dead. Jesus is a source of life for all of mankind. The spiritual principle that Jesus was appealing to here, the spiritual principle that he was offering to people everywhere, was that they were all spiritually dead, just as we were all spiritually dead, and that we were in much need of spiritual refreshment. And just as water brings life to a desert, you ever seen those, those things where the, the desert looks completely dry on, on a... Um, on a, on a those documentaries. It looks dead. It looks bone dry. And then you have these rains that come down and then within a matter of a few days, all these flowers and grasses and things start shooting up from the ground. Just as water does that to a desert, the Bible says that the water or the rain that comes down from heaven brings life to spiritually dead people. But what sort of rain is this? What sort of Water brings life to dead people. Well, Jesus answered that in this passage. And he says, the living water is the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. The Holy Ghost, as the Bible calls him, can be received by everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. They're the only ones who do receive the Holy Ghost. And he's the one who brings life to our spiritually dead bodies. But who is the Holy Spirit? Now, for those of you who'd like to know, he is the third person of the triune God that we worship. Okay? He has always existed with God. He has always been active. And he was active in the beginning of the world, in its creation. He is also responsible for imparting life to the very first man who God created. 
So have, let's, say, let's go right back to the beginning and look at a couple of examples about the Holy Spirit's function or work in this world. And look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 to begin with. We, look, we see the Spirit mentioned in the second verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. There we see the first reference to the Spirit of God. And it's moving on the face of the waters. And the picture here is like a breeze, or like a wind that's, that's blowing across the surface of this watery world which has nothing which has no definition to it which god was going to bring life out of and create from so we often see in scripture this relationship or this comparison to the holy spirit and water and wind you'll see that over and over and the more i study this particular topic the more i realize hey, this is this is happening everywhere throughout scripture that the Holy Spirit is always likened either to water or some sort of a gust of wind or, or a breeze or air. So we'll look at a number of these examples. Turn forward a little bit to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So apart from the Holy Spirit being involved in the creation of the world, when he hovered above the waters, we also see that he was specially involved in the creation of man in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And it says there, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Now notice that breath was breathed into Adam's nostrils, not just there, but it was the breath of life that was breathed into his nostrils. It wasn't just common air that, that turned a statue, essentially, into a living being. The breath made Adam a living soul. It's interesting to note that when Jesus offers water in that passage from John chapter 7, he doesn't offer uh, filtered water or, or regular water or sparkling water. He offers living water. So just as God breathed the breath of life into man, Jesus offers living water to revive us. And he says, that's the Holy Spirit. And who do you think was breathed into the lungs of Adam? What sort of air do you think was breathed into Adam's lungs that it would cause him to become a living soul? It was the Spirit of God that entered into Adam and made him a statue of dust and dirt into a living soul. Is it any wonder... That the Greek word that we translate the word whole or spirit from is, guess what? Pneuma. Pneuma. Ever heard of the word pneumatic tyre? Do you know what's in a pneumatic tyre? Air. Who invented the pneumatic, who invented the pneumatic tyre? Wasn't it Ford? Was it Dunlop? And pneumatic tyre is pumped up. As apart from the original tyres were solid rubber, I understand, for cars. Okay? 
And they realised after that that when you pumped up a, a, a tube, it went further, it was lighter, and it actually provided you a little bit more buoyancy as well. So the word pneuma that we translate spirit from is literally air. Okay? So once again, the, the language itself lends itself to the image of wind and water. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Because God makes a promise that sometime in the future that he would pour out the Holy Spirit just like water from heaven. Zechariah, which is toward the end of the Old Testament, chapter 12, verse 10. Now, God makes a promise to Israel here. He makes a promise to the house of David. And he says in verse 10 of chapter 12, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. That is one amazing, amazing scripture prophecy. This has never occurred in Israel. That the, the grace and, and the spirit of grace and supplications is poured out on the household of David, which are the Jews. And the ones who were living in Jerusalem at that time. And they will look upon him, the one who they have pierced. Who was pierced? It was Jesus. And it says they will mourn for him as they mourn, as one mourns for, for a, an only son. That has still to occur. That has never occurred in history and it cannot be applied to anyone else. And God says, I will pour the spirit of grace and supplication. God's going to pour his spirit out just like he's pouring water from a pitcher onto the people. Is there any wonder that there's such a tussle, such a, a, a fight over this particular city? The devil will do anything he can to try to negate this particular prophecy in the future. Isn't it amazing that the Jews are actually there in possession of it now? Just a reminder and just a little bit of an um, uh, uh, encouragement to understand that we are living in the last days. To make use of whatever time God's given you. Turn to Joel chapter 2 verse 28. So whereas that, that scripture there was a direct prophecy to the house of Israel, to the house of David... It says in Joel that God will pour out his spirit upon all the inhabitants. That's Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. 
that outpouring began at what we call Pentecost. That was the beginning of that, the fulfillment of that, of that uh, prophecy there. It began at Pentecost. It will continue all the way to the end. It will find its fulfillment during the tribulation period. And all of Israel shall be redeemed. And the Bible says that there will be 144,000, I think I might have mentioned this last week, who will go around preaching. There will be two witnesses in Jerusalem and they will do mighty exploits for God. The Spirit of God will be upon them. The promise of Joel has yet to be fulfilled fully, but it began to be fulfilled at Pentecost. The pouring of God's Spirit hasn't stopped. He's still pouring it out today. And the ones who accept Christ are the ones who receive that outpouring. Turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 49, as we see Jesus refer to the fulfillment of this particular promise. Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Luke chapter 24. Verse 49. It says, And behold, this is Jesus speaking. He's speaking to his disciples and his apostles. I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. He told his disciples, hang around in Jerusalem, because that's where the outpouring of God's Spirit is going to be. And it will come upon you. He said, but just wait there. Now, what promise of the Father is he talking about? He's speaking about Joel and about Zechariah. He's speaking about that outpouring of God that God promised in the Old Testament. The Spirit would be poured out when Jesus was glorified. Turn forward to Acts with me for a moment as we see the fulfillment of that particular promise. So Jesus reminds his disciples, hang around, the promise is on its way. And we find in Acts chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. I won't bother reading the rest of it, but you know the rest of it. They were able to speak with other languages. They had tongues of fire on their heads. The men and women that were cowering, that were, were afraid, all of a sudden burst out and preached to thousands of people with boldness and with great power. And that's because the Spirit of God had been poured out upon them. The church had been born. Notice, again, the arrival of the Holy Spirit is compared to what? A rushing mighty wind. So once again, the Spirit is likened, whether it's in Genesis, whether it's in, in, uh, here in, in, in Acts, it's likened to some sort of a, a flowing force. But we know it's a he. We know it's a person. Throughout Scripture, it mentions him that he has emotions, that he's able to be grieved, that he thinks about things, that he chooses things. He was the one who led Jesus into the wilderness. He was the one who led Jesus his entire life. And Jesus was the one who actually followed the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. 
to give us an example of how we are to live. And the Holy Spirit is what Jesus offered to all those who heard him at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the promise that was made by God to all those who would put their faith in his chosen one, in his Messiah. It is what a person experiences when they're born again. Turn to John chapter 3, verse 5. Let's just look at this born again business. Oh, I caught up with a fellow just recently. He was unsaved and it was for business. And I had a chance to share the gospel with him. We had a wonderful conversation together. And one of the questions after I shared the gospel with him was, well, how do you know you're born again? What does that mean? So I proceeded to take him through John chapter 3. John chapter 3 verse 5 says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. See, once again, we have a reference here to the Spirit being what? Like a wind. Like it, it just moves around. It goes to where it wants to go, or he wants to go. It, it moves in people's lives. Once again, we have a reference here that not only compares the Spirit of God to wind, but also compares him to water. Notice how it says, Except a man be born of water of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. There are two things which are necessary for a person to be born again. To be born physically. Waters need to break. Right? Because a baby exists for a nine-month period in a sack of water, essentially. A fluid. And the first chance it gets, what does it do when it comes out? What, is the, what does the doctor wait for? What are they what? Yeah. It has to breathe in first to actually, to actually be okay. If there's no screaming or if there's no crying because it breathes in its first breath, the odds are the baby is not going to live or not, is, is dead. So there are two things that are required for a physical birth. And one is water, which is the medium in which it's born. And the second one is that it needs to breathe in that first breath. And the Spirit of God is not only that breath, right? That spiritual breath that a person draws in, because Jesus is making a comparison between physical birth and spiritual birth. Not only is the, is the Spirit of God that wind which breathes, is breathed once again into a person to bring them alive. He's the medium, in which a person is born again. Don't forget that when we are born again, when a person is, is saved, the Bible says we are baptised in the Spirit. That occurs when we're saved. Do you know the picture of baptism that we, that we have in that, uh, in that pool over there? And that's a picture of, of death, burial and resurrection of the Lord. Well, you go fully under water. And if the Spirit is an indication of water, then we are baptised in Him. 
and we are, we are risen to new life. Just as a person is born out of water in a physical sense, so too a person is born out of spiritual water, through the Spirit of God. And just as the wind blows where it does and you feel it, you might feel it and hear it, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going to, so is the Spirit of God. You may not understand how a person is born again, because that, that person had a very legitimate question. What do you mean, born again? What does that mean? And Nicodemus had a very sensible question. How is a person born again? He was trying to get down to the, to the understanding of it. You can't go back in your mother's womb, can you? Well, that's not going to happen. You may not understand how it happens, but the evidence becomes real. There is a story told of a little boy who was flying a kite and he made sure he took extra, extra string with him because it was a really windy and gusty day. So as he's there with his kite in a field, the kite kept on going higher and higher and higher. And he kept letting off string as much as he could. This thing kept on getting higher and higher and further and further away from him to the point where you couldn't even see the kite that was that far away. And all you saw was a string. And the fellow who walked by said, what are you doing? He goes, I'm flying my kite. And the guy looks up, he couldn't see it. Maybe he had bad eyesight too, who knows. But he said to the guy, to the kid, how do you know you've got a kite at the end of that thing? And the boy said, because I can feel it. I can feel the effect of it. And it's the same thing with the Spirit of God. You may not see him. You may not understand how you were born again. We may not understand now fully what he does in our lives, but we see the effects of him in our lives. We see the effects of him when a person is born again and he comes in and he brings them life. How do you know? Let's look at some of the effects of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus mentions one in this particular passage in John chapter 7. Look at John 7, 38. John 7, 38. Jesus gives us one of the effects. When a person receives this living water into their lives, he says, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now that's a, quite a picture, isn't it? Out of his belly shall flow rivers, not just a stream, not a little trickle. He says rivers of living water. So what's he saying here? He says that once a person believes in him, puts their trust in him, receives him as their Lord and Savior, the promise is that you will not only have enough water to satisfy you and make you alive again, you will have so much. There is so much reserve that it will flow through you to other people as well. Now, that's a wonderful thought. Because that says that not only am I the end recipient of this wonderful living water that God gives us, but I actually become the channel through, who, through which he can work to reach other people. I can be used by him. I can be utilised by him to reach the lost. And the very living water that gave me life can give life to other people. And as, as it flows through me. Extraordinary. 
when you understand how he saves people, that we are somehow in that equation. And Jesus says here, you'll notice something interesting. He says in verse 38, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, as the scripture hath said, which means this is a principle that was already taught in the Old Testament, before the New Testament came around. And I had a bit of a look. And turn with me to Isaiah chapter 58, verse 11. Isaiah 58, verse 11. Isaiah 58, 11, and the, and the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones and thou shalt be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. That's the promise to you. That's the promise to all those who come to the Lord. Here the Lord promises that we will not only be like a well-watered garden, but we will be actually a place where springs of water Continue, which never fail. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 2, turn back just a few chapters to that. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 2 to 4. It says there, Thus saith, this is a very similar teaching. Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb, which will help thee. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon a dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And they shall spring up as among the grass and willows as by the watercourses. There is a promise that God gives for those who are thirsty, that he will pour out his spirit and he will make you flourish. And not only make you flourish, but where there was a desert before, there will be rivers. Not just a watered ground, but literally rivers. And Jesus repeats this teaching, the Feast of Tabernacles, and says, if you're thirsty, come to me. I can give you this water. But he is the only avenue through which you can receive this water. You can go anywhere else in life. You can try any philosophy, you can try any religion, you will try, you can try any type of system that you can to fulfill your life and get you to heaven and, and do all these things. And at the end of it, if you don't have the water that Christ provides, you cannot live. You are still dead in your sins. Because the scriptures clearly teach that if you do not have the Spirit of God, you are none of His. And He is the only way to the Father. But by what manner is this water of spirit made to flow out of us? Well, there are two main manifestations of this. One is our words. The words that God gives us to speak, the spirit gives us. And the second one is our actions. Turn to Acts chapter 2 verse 4. I'd like to share with you that a number of times the spirit of God actually gives the words to speak to people over and over again in miraculous ways.
Now this once again is in reference to the day of Pentecost. And it says in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So get that. So they were filled. They were empowered by Him. They were filled with Him. And as He chose to give them words, they spoke them. He gave them the ability to speak in different languages. Languages that were understood by the thousands that were there at that time, who were visiting from other countries in the world who had different languages. The Bible says the Holy Ghost gave them the ability to speak in those people's languages, which was a testament to the Jews who required a sign. The Bible teaches that clearly. It was the Spirit's job to give the words to the prophets also in the Old Testament and in the New don't have to turn with me. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So the very words that we have in our hands, the word of God that we trust and rely on, was given to men by the Holy Ghost. He gave them the exact words to write. He told them exactly what to say. Have you ever tried speaking without while holding your breath? You can't do it, can you? To speak requires the movement of air through your voice box. It requires that that air is pushed through and there is movement. The Spirit of God is the air that brings those words and those speeches to a lost world. If you don't breathe, you can't speak. And by the same token, if you don't have the Holy Spirit who gives you the words to speak, you can't speak the words of God. The Bible says that the natural man receiveth not the things of God. They are undiscernible to him. He cannot understand them. The second manner in which the, the Spirit can flow through us to lead us in our lives when he saves us. And it's what he does in our lives when you're saved that changes you as a person. The question that, that this fellow asked me at that restaurant was, how does a person know he's born again? Well, something changed in me. Something happened that I can't explain. The desires I had before aren't the same desires I have now. They were planted in there and somehow I have a whole new way of looking at the world. Let's look at some of those things that the Spirit does, which gives us the other manifestation of the Spirit, that other way that, in which He flows through our lives. So the first one is the speech. The first one is the words that He gives to people when they speak the words of God. Okay? The second one is the desires. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 5. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. It says, Therefore they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. This is the difference between a saved and an unsaved person. An unsaved person 
only goes after the things of the world. They are carnally minded. They do not understand spiritual things at all. But when a person receives that living water from Jesus, when he receives the Holy Spirit into his life, all of a sudden he begins to discern those things. He begins to have a desire for them. All of a sudden, hey, you know, the Word of God, actually, I didn't understand this book before. But now all of a sudden, this is taking on a whole new perspective for me. These words that I'm reading actually are making sense. They relate to me now on a personal level. I can see what they say about the world. I can see what he's been telling me all these years and I've been rejecting all these years. That the world we live in is a fallen world. It's full of sin and it needs to be saved. And God made a provision for salvation, which is his only son. And he's the only way. So when you accept Jesus, all of a sudden the Bible says you don't see him the same way anymore. He is not only just a, a prophet or an historical figure or someone that you, you heard about. He becomes all of a sudden your saviour. He becomes your Lord. He becomes your means of life. He becomes our shepherd. And he, he's the one who brings us together in this way. He brings on a, takes on a whole new perspective. And then we see things happening in our lives that we didn't see there before. Because it tells us in Galatians chapter 5, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit. That's a, an encouragement, a command, a challenge to us. Because if we live in the Spirit, if we have the Spirit of God, the challenge to us is to walk in the Spirit. That's our decision. That's our choice every day. We can choose not to. We can choose to have those desires that God's put in us blunted. We can suppress them if we want. And we can listen to our flesh, which is dying to get back to the world which wants to be fed. It's a bit like a, a little child who, who's grown up on, uh, on uh, twisties and cheesels. And then you come along and you say, how can you live? And you see it's, it's emaciated. You see it's not, it's not healthy. It's not well. And so you start to feed it better food. And then it starts to pick up and become, become stronger. But there's still a part of it that's drawn to the, the junk food. And this is the problem that we have. That although God's planted a new nature within us, this, the old nature is still floating around. And so our choice every day is to say, sorry, you're going to have to wait. I need to feed this one over here. And the more we feed the nature that God has put within us, the more it grows stronger and the weaker the other one gets. So that is our choice every day of our lives. Turn with me to John chapter 7, verse 39. It says there, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus makes it clear that there is a special coming of the Holy Spirit, that people will receive him in a way that they had never received before. Turn back to John chapter, sorry, forward to John chapter 16 when he explains this to his disciples. John chapter 16, verse 7. 
the coming of the Holy Spirit could only happen after Jesus had ascended into heaven, not before. Even though the Spirit was at work in people's lives, it could not be received in this particular way until Jesus returned to heaven and was glorified. And look at Jesus' words to his own disciples. He says, nevertheless, in verse 7 of chapter 16, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. It's good for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he... The spirit of truth has come. He will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. That's a wonderful passage. He see, he's got his disciples and he's telling them, I have to leave you. And his disciples don't want him to go. And he says, but unless I go, I can't send you the Holy Spirit. And it's better for you that I actually go and send you the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus managed to lock himself into a physical body, which he didn't have to do. He chose to become a human. And he stayed a human. But the Holy Spirit is, can be everywhere at, 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 at once. The Holy Spirit can inhabit every heart. And unless Jesus returned to the Father and sat on his throne and was glorified and finished his job, he couldn't send that Holy Spirit to do that work. The Holy Ghost was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Hang on a sec. But didn't the people in the Old Testament receive him? No. The Old Testament... Prophets, saints didn't receive him in this particular way. The Bible says, says a number of times that he came upon people at various times in their lives. He was with people. He guided people. But he would never inhabited people in this particular way. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 25, don't need to turn there because we're going to be running short on time and I've got too many scripture verses for you over here. <laughs> And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him and took of a spirit that was upon him, which was Moses, and gave it unto the seventy elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied and did not cease. We see this pattern in the Old Testament over and over again, that the spirit of God comes down on his people and they're able to do his job. They're able to do what he wants them to do. The Holy Spirit came upon people like Moses and those Jewish elders, Samson, Elijah, King Saul even. And King Saul prophesied too. King David and the prophets. But there's something altogether different about the church. There's something altogether different about what Jesus was going to do and what he promised. The promise of the Father was very different. The Holy Ghost was not yet given until Jesus was glorified. And if he was not given, then he could not be received. John chapter 20, verse 22. John chapter 20, verse 22. Jesus 
visits his disciples while they're in a a room, locked in that upper room. John chapter 20, verse 22. And look at the symbolism here. Now we know that Pentecost hasn't happened yet. But Jesus came before that, before he ascended. And he says to his disciples in verse 22, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then he gives them instructions as to what they are to do. Now, isn't it interesting how God first breathed into man and made him a living soul? And Jesus chooses the same type of picture for his disciples. Jesus was creating something new. Jesus was giving life. And that life came through the Holy Spirit, which would come upon them at Pentecost. That's what the Holy Spirit does for a believer. Let's have a look at what happens when you're born again. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The very first thing the Holy Spirit does to us is that he gives us life. He says, and you, Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you hath he quickened. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. That word quicken doesn't mean to make faster. He didn't give us a pair of running shoes or runners and, and said, away you go and go and do a 100 meter sprint. That word quicken means to make alive. So, it's, so that, that verse is telling us, and you, he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That is through the Holy Spirit. The next thing the Spirit does is that he seals us. He saves us, inhabits us, and the Bible says he seals us. It's a bit like, and it says, and the picture is, it's a bit like a package that you want delivered to somewhere across the world. And so you entrust that package to a deliverer. But you don't quite trust the deliverer. You don't quite trust all the hands that it's going to pass by until it gets to your place. So what do you do with with anything that's of any value that you want delivered? Register it. Well, you register it and you seal it in a proper box or some sort of thing that they can't open. Do you understand? You don't put it in a box so you can just, you know, do like that and then have a look inside. You want something that's sealed properly. The Bible tells us that when a person is born again and the Spirit of God comes into their life, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted Christ. In whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom after, in whom, oh, sorry, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know what the Holy Spirit does for us? You know why we, we don't believe in losing your salvation? Because if a person's sealed, they're sealed. And you're sealed until the day you get to heaven. That's our guarantee. The guarantee is that he who starts finishes. That's our guarantee, not because of my effort, because God promised it and it's his business. And if the Spirit of God has sealed me, then who am I to argue with God? God sends his Spirit into our lives to give us life and to seal us. And finally, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And this is, I think, one of the last scriptures. This is probably the last scripture verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. It says, and I've mentioned this once already, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one 
body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free and have been all made to drink into one spirit. When you are saved, you are baptized into one body. And that body is the church of the living God. These things happen to us automatically. We don't have to go praying for them and and hoping for them and, and trying to do them. These are things that happen to us simply by trusting in Jesus. Jesus says if you go to him, he doesn't say there's a whole ritual that we have to go through before we go to him and then once we're with him, we have to try and do all these other things to get the Holy Spirit. No, he says, come to me and I'll give him to you. And this is what happens when a person gets saved. When a person gets saved, he receives the Holy Spirit who gives him life, who raises him from the dead. In fact, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And just as he gave life to his mortal body, the Bible says that we have hope that he'll give us life as well. So he, he, he brings us life. He seals us to the day of redemption. And the Bible says that he baptizes us all into one family. That's done automatically, simply by trusting in Jesus. You might not even know that it happened to you. But the fact that you trusted in Christ meant that it did. But there is one aspect that we have to remember. There is one aspect that we have a decision about in our lives. And that's being filled with the Holy Ghost. Speaking to a large audience, D.L. Moody held up a glass and asked, how can I get, sorry, I think he held up a glass and said, how can I get the air out of this glass? And one man shouted, suck it out with a pump. Moody replied, well, that would create a vacuum and shatter the glass. And after numerous other suggestions, Moody smiled, picked up a pitcher of water and filled the glass. There, he said, all the air is now removed. He then went on to explain that victory in a Christian life is not accomplished by sucking out the sin. You don't do it by trying to remove the sin from your life, but rather by being filled with the Holy Spirit so there's no more room for it. You want victory in your life? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's your choice. It's our decision. And it's a decision that we need to make every day. There are many examples that we could use to illustrate how the Holy Spirit um, fills a person. The other common one is having your sails in your boat filled by the Holy Spirit, the wind. Whether it's being filled up like a glass or, or filling your sails with the wind and you're being driven along, they both require a conscious decision on your part. You need to... Take a glass and and be willing to have a filled. You need to tilt the glass. You need to aim your boat and open your sails in order for those sails to be filled with the wind that will give you progress and make you move. But unless I do those things, unless I make the decision, my life can't be filled. We must point ourselves in the direction that God wants us to go. We must align ourselves to where God would have us to be. And that means that we need to obey. That means that we need to understand and read his word and believe it for what it says. 
not pick and choose that which is convenient for us and neglect that which isn't convenient for us. Obedience is the very best way to grow in Christ. Obedience demonstrates our willingness to be moved by God. If God tells me, if I'm in a boat and God says, all right, open your sails up this way, aim your boat, and I'll fill up your sails and send you wherever, where I want you to go. It takes a conscious decision on our part. We have to hoist the sail. Lack of obedience demonstrates fear. This morning, you may be afraid to obey God. You may have made a decision to entrust your soul to Jesus, to save you from hell, which is wonderful, which is fantastic. But do you trust him to guide you every day of your life? That's the more scary part for us sometimes. And when you think of it logically, it doesn't make any sense. Because if we've entrusted our eternal soul to him, surely our everyday existence here shouldn't be a problem. But most people have a problem with trusting Jesus and they prove it by not obeying him. Lack of obedience demonstrates fear. A fear that God's wind may lead you somewhere you don't want to go. A fear that maybe he's going to fill up your cup a little bit too much than you can handle. A fear that he's going to take you out of your comfort zone. And that's, going to, that's a bit scary sometimes, isn't it? Maybe those desires you have in your life... And you seem to have this wonderful little balance between your earthly desires and God's and godly desires. And you think, I've got the balance just right. But I'm not going to just open up my sails all the way. I'm going to open them up just a little bit because I'm just going to go nice and slow here. Just in case I lose control of the boat. Just in case he takes me somewhere, as I've said, too fast, too far. And so we hold back on God and we choose to give him a bit and we give the rest of us a bit and that makes us feel a little bit safe. You know, there's no greater freedom that a person can have than to trust God with their lives. There is no greater freedom. Jesus didn't just say, You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. In fact, he said, you shall live the truth. And then you will know the truth when you've actually lived it. Knowing the truth doesn't just come by reading. reading. It actually comes by living it. Knowing the truth means experiencing the truth because you've actually lived it. You've risked it. You've looked at this book in your hands that we call the Word of God and you say... I choose to believe this rather than what's out there. I choose to obey this, even though I may not understand it. And even though maybe obeying in this particular way maybe makes it a bit scary. But there's no better way to live than to trust God fully with your life. You know, either one demonstrates a lack of trust for the Lord by holding back on their obedience for him. Or they let go of their fear and they abandon themselves to the God who saved them and they trust the one fully who went to the cross for them. 
And they say, you know something? You don't just own 50% of my life, you own all of me. Because you didn't give 50% for me, you gave it all for me. You deserve everything of mine. There is no freer place to be than to surrender yourself to the will of God, to take his word for what it says and say, I will believe it and I will obey it. If you haven't done this, but are rather holding on to some sin in your life, you can't be happy as a Christian. You can't have the peace that God promises you when you're trying to hold on to the world partly and hold on to him at the same time. Let go of your fear and trust God. Fear is a great enemy. You know, the strange thing at the end, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 21 that fear is one of the sins that will bring people to hell. Fear. You might think, oh, how can God send someone to hell for fear? Well, it tells us, Revelation 21 verse 8, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake, of, a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Hang a sec, it puts fearful together with, look, murderers, abominable, unbelieving, whoremongers and so How can possibly God send fearful people to hell? Because one of the reasons people don't come to the Lord for salvation is because they're more afraid of the world than they are of God. And fear is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you have a greater fear for the world and what other people think about you and what other people might say about you and what you might lose in this world if you choose Christ, and God says there's no other place for you than to be with the ones who have chosen the world. The fearful become the lost. They are the lost. But the Bible teaches us that perfect love casts out fear. It overcomes it. And trusting in the love of your Saviour will help you overcome whatever fear that you may have and allow you to press on in life. You may have received him, but don't let fear paralyse your walk with him. God didn't call us to go following everyone else. He didn't call us to go following other sheep, did he? He didn't ask you to come following me. Did he ask you that? Have I asked you to ever be my disciple? No. Never. I don't ask you to look at me, to follow me. Don't ever look at me in that way. Rather, look to your saviour. Don't look at other sheep and what they're doing Keep your eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and trust him every step of the way. Wherever he leads you, even if he's leading you into a darker place, just trust him. He sees a lot farther than we do. And he loves a lot more than I or anyone else of you can ever love any, anyone else here. Tilt your cup. Open your sails. Trust God with your life. And see what he will do for you. The promise that Jesus made was that he would give the Holy Spirit to us. And if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, it's because you haven't received him. And today is your opportunity. If you don't know Jesus Christ today, if you haven't received Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Saviour, if you haven't understood your sin and repented and turned to him for salvation, you do not have the Holy Spirit. 
You cannot experience any of these things. You do not have eternal life. You have no hope. But there's a simple way to remedy that. Trust in Jesus today. And if you're a Christian, don't waste another moment. Aim yourself in his direction. Follow him with all of your might. Don't be distracted by the things in this world and what the devil is playing around with in your life. Forsake those things which distract you from him and which break your relationship with him. Do it today. You may not have another chance. There are plenty of things the Spirit does for us. This sermon was not meant to be a full treatise on the, on the work of the Spirit and who he is. But my hope for you today is that you would know this verse to be true for yourselves. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. If you know God, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, God is your Father. And you know him in that way. God bless you. Thank you.